Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just big business. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com gold. We continue to get more economic data that confirms that the economy is, in fact, in recession. It's actually a stealth recession because nobody wants to acknowledge that it's actually here. And, of course, we did get positive GDP growth in the third quarter. So that's also throwing everybody off. Remember, when we did have two negative quarters of GDP, they still denied that we were in a recession. So now that they got a positive quarter, It makes the denial even more plausible. But again, when you look into the reasons for the positive number, it's all temporary. It's all the result of exporting oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which I think is now at the lowest since 1982 and continues to be drained. By sometime next year, it will be completely empty. There will be no more strategic oil left in that petroleum reserve. And that means that oil prices will be set to explode higher and there'll be nothing we could do about it. Just imagine if we actually got a legitimate shortage, if something actually happened where we would have normally liked to have utilized those reserves in a legitimate emergency instead of the political emergency that Biden faced. And in fact, had we not sold all that oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, maybe the Democrats wouldn't have done as well in the midterm elections, because people would have been a lot more pissed off about inflation when they were driving to the polls with even more expensive gasoline than what they ended up paying. But the other factor that contributed to gaining GDP in the third quarter, in fact, the only factor, because if you X that out, GDP contracted yet again, was that the trade deficit was much lower than expected, partially because of the export of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, but also because of the strength of the dollar that made our imports less expensive and so shrank the trade deficit. That dollar strength is already reversing, and by next year, it will start subtracting even bigger numbers from an already weakening GDP. Plus, as usually is the case, the 
inflation number that they used to deflate the GDP in Q3, the GDP deflator, was actually much lower than what I believe the actual rate of inflation was or the increase in consumer prices during that quarter. So that is exaggerating the economic growth, because if you can make believe that inflation is lower, then you simultaneously get to pretend that GDP growth is higher. And that's another reason that the government has to lie about inflation, because not only do they fool the public into thinking that inflation isn't as bad as it is, but at the same time, they get a twofer because that also means they get to lie to the public about how strong the economy is because they get to show a stronger GDP number than what they would show if they had an honest inflation number. But looking at the data that came out over the last few days, yesterday, we got the Kansas City Fed Manufacturing Index. And in the month of October, it was negative seven. And in the month of November, it came out at negative six. Sure, slightly higher than the negative seven, but still a negative number. That indicates contraction. Also, today, we got the industrial production numbers for October. And there, we were supposed to be up 0.2. Instead, we dropped 0.1. And adding insult to injury, we downwardly revised the prior month's number which was originally reported at up 0.4, that was up just 0.1. So you're flat now over two consecutive months for industrial production. And again, why this is bad is because if you're trying to fight inflation, one way to make the job easier is to increase the supply of goods. Because remember, prices go up because you have too much money chasing too few goods. Well, one way to help alleviate the upward pressure on prices is to have more goods. But if we're not producing more, then we're not going to get more. And if you look at manufacturing output, that was supposed to rise 0.2. Instead, it rose at just 0.1. And again, the prior month's number was revised from up 0.4 to up 0.2. These are very low numbers. And making it worse, look at the capacity utilization rate. It sank from 80.4 all the way down to 79.9. That is a very weak number, indicative of recession. And in fact, the prior month's number was revised from what was originally reported as 80.3 down to just 80.1. But an even worse number that we got today was the Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index. That was supposed to come out at minus seven, which would have been a slight improvement over the minus 8.7 from the prior month, but any negative number is consistent with recession. You want a positive number if you want a growing economy. And so we got a negative number, but the number that we actually got for November was minus 19.4. This was below even the lowest estimate on the street because the consensus range went from minus 15 to minus five. So nobody thought this number would come out positive. But nobody thought it would be this negative because the economy continues to surprise people by being weaker than everybody expects. Also yesterday, we got the Kansas City Fed Manufacturing Index for November. And there, there was a bit of an improvement over the prior month. We got a minus seven in October and it came out at minus six in November. Now, I'm not really sure what the expectation was, but still, you have back-to-back negative numbers All these numbers would be positive 
if the economy was in fact growing, but the fact that all these manufacturing numbers are coming out negative indicates that it's contracting. And again, this is complicating the Fed's inflation fight because the one thing that would make that fight easier to win would be an increase in the supply of goods, yet all the manufacturing numbers are going in the wrong direction. Now, there was one piece of positive news, at least the way the market took it, that we got yesterday, and that was retail sales for October, which jumped up more than expected. The consensus estimate was for a rise of 1%, and that would have been a big improvement over the flat number that we got the prior month. Instead, we got an increase of 1.3% inside the range of expectations. In fact, the high end of the range was 2%, so we didn't even come close to that. X vehicles, it was an even bigger beat. The expectation was up 0.5, and we got up 1.3. That did exceed the high end of estimates, which went from up 0.2 to up 0.7. And if you take out gasoline in addition to vehicles, there the rise was much bigger than expected, up 0.9, versus expectations of just up 0.2. And the prior month was revised from up 0.3 to up 0.6. So people would look at these numbers and say, hey, Peter, you're wrong. Look at these retail sales. They're really going up. Well, number one, none of these numbers are adjusted for inflation. So they're very deceptive because I think the main reason that retail sales are up is because prices are up. So again, this is not people buying more. This is just people paying more. And in fact, in many cases, they're actually buying less. They're just paying so much more that retail sales are up in dollars, but they're down in volume. But also, I think a more important factor is where are consumers getting all this extra money? Because we know that their wage increases pale in comparison to these price increases. Well, it's actually not a big mystery where they're getting their money. We know they're borrowing it. I mentioned on the last podcast that household debt just soared to an all-time record high, and so did credit card debt with jumps that we haven't seen outside of a massive recession, which again is when Americans turn to credit the most because they don't really have any savings to fall back on on a rainy day. So when it rains, they whip out their credit cards. And that is a big problem, especially when you have interest rates rising on those credit cards, interest rates rising across the board on all sorts of debt. And that debt burden is going to weigh much heavier on the debtors due to the rise in interest rates, not just the rise that has already occurred, but the rise that's about to occur. And of course, as households are experiencing an increase in the cost of servicing their debt, they're about to experience, or in some cases already are, a decrease in the value of those assets, especially the assets that are levered and are collateral against their debt, their homes. Over the last couple of years, real estate prices are still way up. So consumers still think they're richer, even though they're paying higher interest on their mortgage if they have an adjustable rate mortgage or if they have a fixed rate mortgage, then they haven't been impacted by the rise in mortgage rates. But the way they will be impacted is as a homeowner because the value of their homes is going to go way down. And as a result of the reverse wealth effect, they may end up spending a lot less, but also they don't have the real estate home equity to fall back on, nor can they tap into that equity through a home equity line of credit or something like that. 
that was a lifeline that in previous recessions, homeowners could take advantage of. Well, this time, they're not going to be able to take advantage of it, and they're certainly not going to be able to do a refi. Refis were really the lifesaver for a lot of homeowners because they were able to refinance their mortgage into a lower rate, and in many cases, they could extract some cash and do the refi and still lower their rate and withdraw cash because of the savings from the lower rate. Well, nobody can do that anymore. In fact, nobody wants to refinance their mortgage because the mortgage rates that exist today are much higher than the current rate. And so you can't do a cash out refi because to do that, you would have to refinance into the current mortgage rate and nobody would be dumb enough to do that, which means that piggy bank is empty and homeowners can no longer rely on it to pay the bills. So they're using their credit cards more, but at some point they're gonna be tapped out there as well, especially as consumer prices continue to rise. So they have less saved and everything they need to buy is more expensive. Remember, initially, households were flush with savings. The savings rate spiked up because everybody got these stimulus checks. And more importantly, a lot of people that weren't working during the pandemic, their pandemic unemployment checks were double or triple what they used to earn. So they had a lot of money, which they promptly spent. Remember, I talked about that in real time. I didn't think anybody was actually going to save this money. They were just going to spend it. The only reason it took a while to spend some of it is because they were confined to their homes, and so they couldn't really spend as much as they wanted to. But as soon as the economy reopened, they spent. And of course, while they were stuck at home, they did shop online. And they bought a bunch of stuff on Amazon and places like that. And you saw some of these spikes, like they were buying Peloton bikes or things that you could do at home. But now that money is gone and there's no new stimulus checks coming. And so without that lifeline, a lot of households are just going to sink. On a political front, the Republicans have finally captured control of the House of Representatives, but just barely. They needed 218 seats to be the majority, and that's how many they have right now to the Democrats, 210. There are still seven seats up for grabs. Even if all seven go to the Democrats, obviously they'll only have 217, and so they'll be in the minority. I think one or two of those seats will likely break Republican, maybe three tops. So Republicans will have a very slim majority but that also means that the House is going to be up for grabs pretty easily in 2022 because it's going to be such a tight split between the Republicans and Democrats. But at least Nancy Pelosi will no longer be the Speaker of the House. And I think that is a major victory to take her out of that chair. And I think to have the Republicans at least in control of the purse strings. Remember, all revenue bills have to originate in the House of Representatives. And the reason for that was that the House of Representatives was much closer to the people, certainly the way the framers originally envisioned it, because U.S. senators were not elected by the people. Initially, they were appointed by the state legislatures, so they were not directly responsible to the people. And of course, only one third of the U.S. senators were up for re-election every two years, whereas the House Every member had to face re-election every two years, and therefore they would have to explain to the taxpayers why they raised their taxes. That was one of the ways the framers made it harder for taxes to be raised by forcing all those revenue bills to originate 
from the body closest and most responsible to the people themselves. But of course, one of the ways that people are taxed now is through inflation. And so nobody actually has to vote for that. And nobody has to take any responsibility for that. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of people now that are talking about gridlock and how this could be a problem. Look, gridlock wouldn't be a problem. Gridlock would be better than getting legislation passed because whenever the government passes legislation, it always makes things worse. They never pass legislation to repeal stuff. That would be progress. But when they have more regulation, more programs, more agencies, all of that diminishes freedom. The more laws we have, the more regulations we have, the less freedom we have. So the less government does, the better. So to the extent that we have gridlock and that means nothing gets done, that's a win. Now, of course, it would be good if stuff got undone, if we could pass legislation to repeal stuff, but that never happens anyway. So the best we can hope for is that we don't lose any more rights. We never get the rights we lost back, but at least if we had gridlock, that could protect us from losing more. But my fear is not gridlock, but bipartisanship, because I think the economy is going to be so weak over the next two years that politicians, based on politics, are going to be forced to do something about it, to provide aid or stimulus or something like that. And so what's probably going to happen is we're going to have a compromise to get legislation passed. And what does that mean? That means the worst of both worlds. That means the Democrats get more welfare spending and the Republicans get some tax cuts. And of course, both the Democrats and the Republicans get more warfare spending. It's hard to tell now the Democrats or the Republicans when it comes to military spending because they all want to keep spending there. It's not just the Republicans that want to spend on the military. You got the Democrats leading the charge there as well. I mean, they just want to spend. They don't really care what they're spending it on. They just want to make sure they spend. But Republicans, they don't want to go back to their constituents with another handout. They want to go back with a tax cut. But the problem is when you're cutting taxes without cutting spending, you're not really delivering tax cuts. Because remember, every penny the government spends has to be collected in taxes. Government spending is taxation. So any Republican that tells you he's in favor of tax cuts, even if he votes for tax cuts, if that same Republican also voted for increased spending or even voted to pass a budget that represented an increase in spending, then he's a tax hiker. He's not a tax cutter. He's just disguising the method of taxation. We're just trading legitimate taxation, in most cases income tax, for an illegitimate inflation tax, where instead of taking your money, the government takes the purchasing power from your money and spends it. The government prints money and spends it instead of taxing and spending. But when they print and spend, they are adding money into circulation, and therefore they are diminishing the value of the money that you still have. So just because they didn't take your money, it doesn't mean you didn't get taxed. You got taxed by inflation. And when you go to the store and the prices are higher, those higher prices amount to taxes. Can we talk about notifications for a second? Who actually leaves those sounds on anymore? 
Well, besides that one, that's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted so your business keeps on growing from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether your thing is vintage teas or recipes for ghee, start selling from Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide with shopify you'll create an online store in your vibe discover new customers and grow the following that keeps them coming back and thanks to 24 7 support and free libraries full of educational content shopify's got you every step of the way it's how every minute new sellers around the world make their first sale with shopify and you can too when you're ready to launch your thing into the spotlight do it with shopify the commerce platform backing millions Millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. This is a possibility powered by Shopify. But what I like best of all about Shopify is how simple it makes the selling process. So whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify makes your success possible. Making your idea real opens endless possibilities, and Shopify makes it easier for anyone to succeed running their own business. It's never been easier to start and grow a business thanks to Shopify. Go on, try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com gold. Go to shopify.com gold to start selling online today. Shopify.com gold. But the big news of the week continues to be the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX debacle. In fact, as more and more evidence comes out, they've got the guy who ran the Enron bankruptcy restructuring, who is now in charge of FTX. And this guy said he has never seen anything like this as far as the degree of fraud and mismanagement. And this is coming from the guy who took over Enron. And this is much worse than that. In fact, a lot of people were saying maybe this guy is a mini Madoff. He's not a mini Madoff. He's bigger than Madoff, and he made off with everybody's money. That's the problem. On earlier podcasts, I wasn't coming right out and saying, hey, the guy was a crook. I thought he was, but I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. I've been falsely accused of things myself, so I know how it feels. But at this point, enough evidence has already come out that if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. It's a duck. And this guy and probably a lot of other kids who were working with him are going to end up facing criminal charges. And of course, it was a bunch of kids. If you're listening to this podcast and you're in your 20s, you don't think other 20-year-olds are kids. But when it comes to running companies, being the CEO and the CFO, if you got a bunch of 20-somethings, who are running a supposedly multi-billion dollar operation with no real adult supervision, people that have real experience aren't there, you're bound to get something like this. But I don't think it was just that these guys lacked experience. They were actually stealing this money. I don't believe that they didn't realize that what they were doing was theft. What they did, if you haven't already learned about it, they were taking the money that their customers were depositing into their FTX accounts. And they were taking that money. And in many cases, it wasn't even money anymore. It was tokens. They were taking their tokens over to Alameda Research where they were speculating in crypto and losing because cryptocurrencies have collapsed. And so they were probably on the long side of that market given what everybody believed for crypto. 
And so they basically embezzle this money, which is really what it's doing, because you don't have permission. In fact, they're representing to their customers that they're not doing that. Yet that's exactly what they were doing. But then they took that money and they gambled with it and then lost it. But even if they hadn't lost it, that wouldn't have made it right. They may have gotten away with it if they could have taken the money, gambled, made money, and then returned it. But that's not the way it happened. In fact, if I were to guess the way things went down, they probably initially thought, hey, we could take some of this money. No one's going to notice it. We're so smart. We're going to trade it. We're going to make a bunch of money. And then we'll put the money we took back and nobody will know. No one gets hurt and we can make all this money. Except the trades didn't work out the way they thought. They ended up losing money. And then they were probably thinking, okay, well, now we need to steal a little bit more to make back what we lost, and then we'll put the money back and everybody will be fine. And they kept losing more and more, and they were digging themselves deeper and deeper into a hole to the point that they had no choice but to keep digging because the minute they stopped, the whole thing would collapse. And so at that point, they were desperate. Their only chance was riskier and riskier bets to try to get out of this hole. And of course, they only ended up in a deeper hole. It kind of reminds me of what happened with Nick Leeson, who destroyed Bearing Bank because he was gambling, trading Nikkei futures, and he lost some money, and then he kept burying his losses and trying to trade his way out of it, but he kept losing more and more until he eventually bankrupted the entire bank. There's a great movie about that called Rogue Trader, which, you know, it's about a 20-year-old movie. If you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth watching. And so I'm sure it's on Netflix or one of these streaming services, Rogue Trader. It stars the Scottish actor Ewan McGregor. And this movie came out very early in his career. So at the time, very few people had heard of him. But of course, he's very famous now. But he wasn't when he made this movie. But he did an excellent job. So I strongly recommend if you have some time over the weekend and you haven't seen that movie, give it a watch. But getting back to FTX, it also turned out that most of the assets on their balance sheet was, in fact, their own FTT tokens, which was the native token of FTX. And supposedly, the value of these tokens was that you could use them to get discount commissions on the trades that you were doing on FTX. But of course, people bought this token. And the idea was that as the FTX network grew, then the tokens themselves would be more valuable. And I think FTX was supposed to use a percentage of its profits, maybe 20%, I'm not sure exactly, and they were going to burn tokens. So the more money FTX would make, they would actually take tokens out of circulation. But in the meantime, I don't know if there was a limit to how many tokens they could put into circulation. So they literally could write their own checks that nobody was cashing and then pretend they had real money. But then worse, they were borrowing against that fake money and they were levering it up. They were saying, hey, we've got this collateral, which basically is our own tokens, our own IOUs. And they were able to borrow money against that. And of course, when the value of that token imploded, which is exactly what happened, there goes all the collateral for those loans. If you look at the high price of the FTT token last year, it was up at $73.50 at its peak. As I'm recording this podcast on Thursday evening, the tokens are trading at about a dollar and a half. And so that's a 98% decline. But the real value of these tokens is zero. Why are they not at zero? The whole thing was a fraud. At this point, it's now a meme coin because getting a discount on FTX trading 
is meaningless. There is no more FTX trading. Your, your money is frozen. You're going to be lucky if you get any of your money back if you had an account at FTX. So there's no value in these tokens to the extent that they ever had any value. There's no reason to even believe they have value, yet people are still paying for them. I'm not sure what the market cap is at $1.50. It's several hundred million dollars. But why are these tokens worth several hundred million dollars? They're not worth anything. But again, none of these tokens are worth anything. I guess now it's a meme token, just like Dogecoin or Shibu Inu or some of these other ones. I guess it's exciting to own the token of a bankrupt company, a company that may, in fact, be the biggest Ponzi scheme in U.S. history, the way it was run. This is a bigger fraud than Madoff. I think it's a bigger fraud than Theranos. The most amazing thing, though, is how many supposedly sophisticated people fell for his con, because that's really what it was. He was a con man. His whole persona was an act. The idea that he was this compassionate billionaire who was giving away all of his money and spent none of it on himself. Everybody wanted to be around this guy. Everybody wanted to invest with this guy. And he was conning them. Nobody bothered to look beneath the surface of this facade. Because if anybody did, they would have seen immediately all these red flags. Look, I wish I had bothered to take a closer look at Bankman-Fried. It never dawned on me to research him at all. I had never even seen any of his interviews until after the whole thing collapsed. I only knew his name, and I knew that he was supposedly this billionaire, and he was giving away a lot of money to political candidates, but I really didn't look into him. But whenever I confronted one of these guys— like Alex Mashinsky, he was the founder of the Celsius Network that has already collapsed and filed for bankruptcy. I didn't know about him until I had this debate with him. And the minute I had a debate, I knew he was a fraud. And I said, you're running a Ponzi. And of course, his whole Ponzi scheme already imploded. Had I ever had a debate with Bankman-Fried, I would have immediately come to the same conclusion. In fact, had I spent 10 minutes doing even superficial due diligence on this guy, I would have seen so many red flags, I would have run. I never would have given him any money. But because I never even considered putting any money in, I never looked at it. But think about all the people, like Kevin O'Leary is one of the guys out there that was a big investor. And now, of course, he's demanding that the government protect him from making future mistakes. This guy is supposed to be sophisticated. He's one of the sharks. He probably did more due diligence on some of these contestants on Shark Tank, where he's given a money, he probably knows more about these Shark Tank contestants than he did about Alameda or FTX or Bankman Free, because there's no way that this guy could have actually done any homework whatsoever and given him money. It's just that people didn't give a damn. They wanted to get in on it. It was exciting. He was the talk of the town. Everything was going up. Everybody wanted a piece of his action. And nobody wanted to question it. Everybody was just lucky to get in because this was a mania. This was gambling. Nobody did any research. And in fact, the signs were so obvious that this was a scam, yet there was so much pressure to ignore what should have been obvious. And a lot of people are saying with the benefit of hindsight, "Uh uh-uh, it didn't take hindsight. Anybody could have seen this. This wasn't hard. Again, the only reason that I didn't see it is I never even bothered to check. But if I was considering investing money with him, then I would have checked. But I didn't.
But think about how ridiculous all the people who did check into it looked or pretended they checked into it and just invested blindly. If so many smart people in the crypto space could be so wrong about Bankman-Fried and FTX, maybe they're wrong about a lot of other stuff. Maybe they're wrong about everything related to crypto. The fact that they were so easily fooled by this con, maybe they were easily fooled by the entire con. Maybe everything about crypto is a fraud. But maybe Sam Bankman-Fried and his FTX empire was the biggest fraud, but it's all symptomatic of everything that's going on in crypto. And it should call into question the judgment of all these people who are drunk on the crypto Kool-Aid. They were so drunk that they were fooled by Bankman-Fried, but they were fooled by everything. The whole promise of crypto and Bitcoin is wrong. It's based on a lack of understanding of money and economics. But this is an example of where a little bit of knowledge is dangerous because the people that got into it had a little bit correct when it comes to fiat currency and central banking, but then they misunderstood gold and they believed that you could replicate gold artificially with a string of numbers. I called it fool's gold. These were modern day alchemists and they bought their own bullshit and this is the result. But what's going to happen now is the rest of the investment community that initially looked at these people as some kind of cutting edge geniuses that were onto the next big thing, the next internet. And this really shows how foolish they are. And it's going to make it much more difficult to fool more institutions, even retail investors, to get into this thing, which is why it's going to implode. Because the only way that you can keep a chain letter going is with more chain. The only way a pyramid scheme keeps going is if you have more people, right? It's the greater fool theory. Well, there are no more fools. This is exposing that the fools are the ones that bought into this nonsense. And so now if you're still holding your crypto or your Bitcoin, then you're the greatest fool. There are no greater fools and you are the bag holder. Also, another aspect of this that I've been talking about for a long time is that all the people who made money in crypto, including the people who pumped it up, in fact, especially the people who pumped it up, I've been saying for years, they're going to get sued. Because whenever people lose a lot of money, the lawyers always show up. These guys smell blood. They're chasing ambulances. And there's a lot of dead bodies now all around from crypto, especially right now, the people who were invested in FTX. And the lawsuits have already started. Tom Brady is being sued. Shaquille O'Neal, Larry David. These are the guys that were in commercials promoting FTX. Why are they getting sued? Well, people are going to say, I only bought it because of Tom Brady. And they're going to say Tom Brady should have done more research before he lent his name to a company. Because once you become a spokesman for the company, now you're on the hook. Now, maybe there was some kind of indemnification that Brady got with FTX where they said, well, if you get sued, you'll indemnify me. Well, that's not going to do him any good anymore because the indemnifier is broke too. And so a lot of these people are going to end up mired in lawsuits, but it's not just going to be the spokesman. It's going to be everybody that was involved. And again, not just FTX. All these dominoes are going to fall. We have yet to see the fallout from FTX. 
a lot more downside is coming in cryptos. It's amazing to me that Bitcoin is still at 16,700 or wherever it's trading. That's where it was the last time I looked, but it should be a lot lower. And so should all of these tokens. Now they will be lower. Right now, a lot of these hodlers are like deer in a headlight. They have no idea what's about to hit them. And so they're kind of frozen there, but they're going to get run over by a Mack truck. And in addition to all these lawsuits and just the implosion of FTX and all the companies that were counterparties to this company and that are being dragged down in its wake, you're going to have the fact that all of these people that work for all these tech companies are going to be laid off. Now, I've been talking about that for months and months on the podcast, particularly the layoffs that are coming in the blockchain and the crypto space, because I knew that not only would a lot of these companies have to lay off workers to cut their burn with a rising rate environment where people don't want these risk stocks anymore, but I knew that a lot of these crypto companies were going to go bankrupt and some have and more will, which means all these workers are going to get laid off. And chances are most people working in crypto drank the Kool-Aid. They were in crypto because they believed in crypto. And so they probably have most of their net worth tied up in cryptos. And so what happens when they lose their jobs and they no longer have an income how are they going to pay the bills? Well, they have to sell the only thing they've got, which is their cryptocurrency. Whether it's Bitcoin or something else, they have to sell to buy stuff. And by the way, the stuff that they need to buy is getting more and more expensive because of inflation. And the cryptocurrencies that they have to sell are getting less and less valuable. So the price of the stuff that they need to buy is going up, but the market value of the cryptocurrency they have to sell to buy it is going down. And so that's making it worse because your inflation rate is much higher if you're pricing stuff in Bitcoin or another currency that is falling as the price of the stuff that you need to buy is rising. And so I was talking about all this extra selling pressure that is going to come from unemployed former blockchain crypto company workers who now have to sell their stack in order to pay their bills. And another indication of the selling that's coming is the discount on the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It was trading today and it closed right near a 43% discount to net asset value. That is huge. What that means is that the people who are selling their GBTC shares with Bitcoin at 16700 if you're willing to accept a 43% discount, what you're doing is you're selling your Bitcoin effectively at 9500 a Bitcoin when the current price of Bitcoin is 16700 Now, if you're going to sell something that is worth 16700 and you're willing to accept 9500 what does that tell you? It tells you that the investors who own the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust are very bearish on Bitcoin. They're so bearish that they're willing to take 9500 because they obviously believe if they just sit and hold their shares that the price of Bitcoin is going to fall below 9500 So they might as well get out now and take 9500 while they can get it. And remember, a lot of the buyers in GBTC, these are the institutions. These were the big buyers that were supposed to drive Bitcoin to the moon. Remember when everybody put the laser beams on their eyes and they wanted to see 
Bitcoin 100,000. By the way, Tom Brady finally removed the laser beams from his eyes. Everybody should take the laser beams off their eyes. There's no way we're going back up to 100,000. You look ridiculous if you still got those laser beams on your eyes. So wake up and see reality. Maybe the reason some of these holders can't see reality is because they can't see through those laser beams in their eyes. Now, remember, Barry Siebert keeps talking about how they're going to convert GBTC to an ETF. Now, there's no chance that's going to happen. I think that they want to keep that fantasy alive. But clearly, the current holders don't want to wait around. They just want to get out while they can because they know the price is going down. But my point is, if all these institutional buyers are now big sellers and they hate Bitcoin so much, they're willing to take a huge discount just to get out. That shows you that all that adoption isn't going to happen. And we've passed that wave. The institutions that got in want out. In fact, they're embarrassed they got in. They're going to have to explain to their investors why they were dumb enough to get in. All the people that had money with FTX, yeah, they got a lot of explaining to do. But eventually, everybody who has money in Bitcoin, too, is going to have some explaining to do. Because everyone who swallowed this bait is going to look foolish. And of course, as I said earlier, a lot of them are going to get sued. Because after the dust settles, with the benefit of hindsight, it's going to be very obvious to everybody, and probably juries too, that people who were fiduciaries or people who took money and then promoted, and that again includes CNBC, which is why I thought it was particularly hypocritical, and I mentioned this on my last podcast, of Scott Wapner really taking Anthony Papliano to task, which is something that should be done, except it should have been done a year ago when they were giving him softballs. Not now, after everything collapses, finally asking him some tough questions without doing any reflection on how much more pumping CNBC did. I talked about the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. They were CNBC's biggest advertiser. At one point, you couldn't watch CNBC for more than one segment without seeing a Grayscale Bitcoin Trust commercial. And now that thing is collapsed. I'm not sure if they're still running those commercials. But the other thing CNBC did with Bitcoin is every time they had a guest, didn't matter who he was, what his background was, what company he worked for, every single guest during every interview was asked for an opinion on Bitcoin. So CNBC did everything they could to legitimize Bitcoin and crypto. They had nonstop pumping from their guests, from their advertisers, from their anchors. And now all of a sudden, they want to blame an individual pumper for utilizing the platform, for standing on the red carpet that they rolled out and screaming through the megaphone that they gave him and say, hey, it's all your fault. You came on our air and you kept talking about how Bitcoin was going to go up. You let him on your air and talk about how Bitcoin was going to go up and you never challenged. Nobody was challenged. Nobody was taking the task. None of these conflicts of interest were ever pointed out. Everybody that pumped Bitcoin was taken seriously and put up on a pedestal. And you know why? Because everything was going up. Everything was great. Everybody loves a bubble. Everybody loves a mania until after it pops. And then everybody wants to point fingers at other people instead of accepting responsibility for what they did. And that is particularly true when it comes to government, because you know there's all sorts of new regulation that's going to come out 
as a result of this. And I think it's going to reach way beyond the crypto industry. I think everybody is going to get caught up with this new regulation that is going to further undermine our individual liberty and run up the costs of all sorts of financial transactions. Ultimately, those costs have to be borne by investors or the American economy, and it's going to only serve to make us less competitive. You've got all these guys now in the crypto industry demanding more regulation. Well, that regulation is going to end up impacting other industries because the crypto industry is pretty much going to go away. So they're not going to be around to deal with these regulations. It's going to be all the legitimate companies that are going to have to bear that burden. But now that I spent all this time talking about fool's gold, I want to wrap up today's podcast by talking about real gold. Only this time, I don't want to talk about the bullion that we sell at Shift Gold, but Mene Jewelry. And that's because the holidays are coming up. We got Thanksgiving next week, and that's the kickoff of the holiday season. It begins the countdown to Christmas. And I think the best gift that you can give someone you really care about this holiday season is Mene Jewelry. I love it. My wife absolutely adores it. She has a whole collection. And every time she wears it out, she gets nothing but compliments because when people see pure gold, there's nothing like it. And if you've never worn a piece of Mene jewelry, I really recommend that you buy your first one because the minute you buy a piece, you're going to be hooked and you're going to create a collection. And one of the best things about Mene jewelry is you're getting real gold because normally when you buy jewelry, if you pay $1,000 for some gold jewelry, maybe there's $100 worth of gold in that jewelry. So you're paying a premium that is 10 times the amount of gold. But when you buy many jewelry, they only add a 30% design fee to the jewelry. So if you're buying something with $1,000 worth of gold in it, you're going to pay $1,300. So you're really only paying $300 because whenever you don't like that jewelry, if you get tired of wearing it, you can sell it and get your $1,000 back. Normally, if you buy some jewelry and then you want to sell it on the secondhand market, you're going to lose 80 to 90% of what you paid. But in fact, with Mene, if you wear the jewelry for a couple of years and the price of gold goes up, you might be able to trade it in and actually get more money back than what you paid. That never happens with normal retail. Now, is this a good way to buy gold? No, because at Shift Gold, we mark up bullion 1% or 2%. We're here at Mene, they're marking it up 30%, but you can't wear your bars or coins you buy from Shift Gold. They just sit in a safe doing nothing but storing value. But when you buy some of your gold in the form of jewelry, you get the pleasure of wearing it. And I believe the design premium that you pay is a much better way to buy jewelry than paying a much higher price for jewelry that hardly has any actual gold in it. So Monet may not be the best way to buy gold, but it's hands down the best way to buy jewelry. So I contacted Monet and I got them to agree to give my listeners 5% off this holiday season. The offer expires November 30th. You have to use the promo code SHIFT2022. The offer, unfortunately, excludes new arrivals, but the discount will apply to everything else. So go to Monet.com. And take advantage of 5% off, which effectively reduces the 30% design fee to just 23.5%. Again, that's www.mene.com 
Monet.com and use the promo code SHIFT2022 to get 5% off. 